0: Leeds, Leeds, Leeds! What is happening? Welcome to Working Hours, an oral history podcast about a place called Leeds, a time called Now, and an activity called Work. Working Hours wants to record 1,000 loiners over the course of this, the most important decade in the history of the human species, and ask them about what they do all day, and hear how they feel about it. My name is Simon, and this is All My Fault. My mission here is to try to map out what my city, Leeds, a city that has declared a climate emergency, did during humanity's biggest emergency. On Working Hours, we hear how Loiners have, are, and will be coping with our multiple and expanding crises during their day-to-day working hours. Can we turn things around? We'll find out. To tell this story, I need Loiners. Loiners like you, dear listener. I need people in Leeds or people from Leeds to come on this podcast and just tell me what they do all day and let me record how this affects us. Thank you for listening. What did you want to be when you grew up?
1: I think the prevailing uh, memory I have is that I wanted to be a hairdresser. Really? Because for me, when I was really little, that was that was it that and I have a lot of associations with wearing long white socks in primary school (laughs) so that's a peculiar peculiar start but yeah so I'm not a hairdresser later on in my teenagers I wanted to be a humanitarian aid worker I am also not a humanitarian aid worker (laughs) so my early dreams have been shattered
0: (laughs) oh no (laughs) I think you're probably quite glad of that though
1: yeah yeah I think my mother's relieved especially with me you know would have been relieved <laughs> that I'm not a married <laughs> aid worker putting myself at risk Yeah. and true. uh yeah but, uh, both valid valid career choices just not the ones I actually ended up doing <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay
2: and same question to you Rory what did you want to be when you grew up I didn't want to be a hairdresser. I'll say that straight out. Um, <laughs> I did. I did want to be a marine biologist mm. um, from quite early on, and I think the the inspiration for that was. And I'm not sure whether w- w- whether it was a good idea, but my my parents let me watch Jaws. Um, I wasn't very young. I was probably mm. just about okay. You know, it's just about acceptable to watch it, but I was absolutely fascinated mm. um, with sharks. And I know a lot of probably a lot of kids growing up in the 80s, 90s. That probably was mm. was the case. You know, a real sort of fascination around this big this big fish in the sea mm. and that then prompted a lot of interest yeah around marine life aquatics the ocean and um yeah probably not until I got to secondary school that then shifted a little bit uh, but yeah that was that was always my hope that I would be uh yeah sort of diving deep into the ocean and and uh yeah studying studying these things you are listening to series 4 episode
0: 16 and to my guests. Dr. Rory Padfield and Dr. Alexandra Dales. This is another Zoom interview, recorded on the 30th of March, 2023. I'm excited about this episode, even if it has had to come out more than six months after I recorded it. Please join my Patreon to support the show. But it's still a fascinating and important interview. We have had a hell of a summer and a hell of an El Nino. Which isn't over yet. We need to pull our fingers out and get serious about reality yesterday. And we will only know that's starting to happen either when the news and the political theatre show goes away or it changes its discourse radically. But that's not going to happen, is it? So it was nice being alive for a bit. Thanks to everybody for helping me to ruin it. Dr. Rory Padfield is an interdisciplinary social scientist and a lecturer in sustainability and business. In his research, he engages with the broad themes of supply chains and natural resource governance, sustainable consumption and production, and corporate sustainability across and between different scales of business and organisations. Rory is especially interested in organisational supply chains that originate or have impacts in countries in the Global South, drawing on political ecology perspectives to pursue critical questions around ethics, social and environmental responsibility, and local global political economy. Rory has investigated the adoption of international sustainability standards amongst small and medium-sized food manufacturers in Malaysia and Indonesia, sustainability impacts of water commercialization on Malaysian utilities companies, and examined the sustainability and traceability of palm oil in a UK university supply chain. Rory's unique academic background spanning geography and environmental engineering facilitates a commitment to inter- and transdisciplinary approaches to the study of the sustainability of business and organisations. His knowledge and experience of development in the Global South is grounded in six years working in Southeast Asia and extensive fieldwork in sub-Saharan Africa, including 10 months spent in Zambia, for his doctoral research. Dr. Alexandra Dales is an Economic Geographer and Senior Lecturer at YBS, that's York Business School, in York St. John University. Her early research centred on examining food and general merchandise, global production networks, national retail markets and sourcing and supply networks in the UK and elsewhere from an economic geographical perspective. Dr Dales is a principal investigator for an XR Stories funded project, Sustainability Stories, investigating the UK creative industry and the communication of sustainability. The project brings together academic expertise in market economies and firms, York St John University, and sustainability from University of Leeds and is exploring how SMEs involved in film, multimedia art, advertising and immersive and interactive digital technologies can communicate sustainability transformations through creative storytelling in order to engage policymakers, consumers and market actors. Alexandra specializes in qualitative research methods, in-depth secondary data collection, and thematic analyses. She has been particularly successful at developing industry contacts and securing participant interviews within previous research projects both in the UK and Southeast Asian contexts. As a result of her research, she has become highly skilled at interviewing diverse participants. Right, let's do this, episode 96 of Working Hours, with Dr. Rory Padfield
2: and Dr.
0: Alexandra Dales. Okay, so I'll stay with you, Rory, for now. So, what is it that you are doing now?
2: So I now work as a lecturer at the University of Leeds. Um, I lecture in sustainability and business mm-hmm. within the School of Earth and Environment. So broadly, looking at the way that businesses and organisations how they can move towards a more kind of sustainable agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I've taken a kind of a, a different path, maybe to to some of my colleagues who yeah well in fact there are many different paths to get to to the point where you teach sustainability but I like Alexandra have a a background in geography so the Mm. sort of shift for me although I had that interest in marine biology it was um yeah doing a degree degree in geography an MSc in environmental engineering and then I went back to to geography to do a PhD Mm. in development geography I was interested in um interested in water scarcity in in sub-saharan africa so i did Mm. my phd there but yeah i've ended up now teaching on sustainability and business
0: Mm. okay um so i won't delve into that more uh because we've got a limited window today and we're doing two people and we're gonna go slightly off from the normal route so uh alexandra what is it that you do now then
1: Okay, so I am also le- lecturing. I'm in uh, York Business School, York St. John University, and uh, I I am now researching sort of sustainability in business. And this is how, you know, Rory and I were introduced a few years back by a mutual friend, and we had lots of shared interests. But really, my background, I'm also a geographer, but I, I rather than looking at in sort of a developmental geography, I'm an economic geographer. So I did my PhD at University of Manchester in economic geography and I looked at macroeconomics, and mm-hmm. um, specifically globalization of retailing so mm-hmm. tesco's being overseas or walmart mm-hmm. and, and spent lots of time looking at these major sort of economic structural processes in process of globalization and global production networks mm-hmm. so really um all, all this, the the major systems in our global economy were, were the basis of my my bread and butter throughout my phd and a little after that until i've come to shifting my focus but before i did my phd i worked for eight years as a geography teacher in secondary school in london mm-hmm. and uh, that was, <laughs> I was i was quite happy to do a phd i was quite tired it was a it's a hard job being a teacher <laughs> total credit and respect to those who are yeah. uh, teaching and i mean geography is a great subject i always love geography mm-hmm. and i did um, my masters i did at liverpool and I, that was in economic geography. So geography is a globalization development. And I did um, my undergraduate at Liverpool quite a while ago. <laughs> I shouldn't reveal my age, but it's a little while ago. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's how I know. So geography, geography, more geography and a bit more geography and now sustainability geography.
0: <laughs> yeah. But I think with any subject, if you keep pursuing it, there comes a point where you you have to go, oh, sustainability now, because uh, I can't do this anymore
1: well and, uh, absolutely and, and also I, I look back now my phd where i just focused on global economic systems particularly production networks and process globalization supply chains mm. and i'm value i'm glad of it now because it really informs i understand mm. why and how we're now destroying the planet mm. i actually have got that that i understand the systems mm. that we need to change mm-hmm. and and i and i was looking at the discipline and economic geography and it was I'm not going to say it was more of the same because you need to understand these processes mm-hmm. but you had this major looming issue of climate sort of uh, change associated with all all the lack of sustainability within our finance mm-hmm. Earth and we have to look at why and how that's happening I know and now you know I know the how and the why mm-hmm. it's just what are we going to do about it mm-hmm. and all of the systems that I examined now need to really majorly shift mm-hmm. And it's working out the how, mm. how do we do that? And that's mm. it. That's challenging. That's, that's going to be, that's difficult, but yeah, so that's, that's, I'm glad to be doing something that actually could contribute to making things better okay. rather than observing more of the same.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 And doing more of the same as well, because we need to see those changes so that we, so other people can implement them. I mean, I mm. really believe that like we can't, we can't do things we haven't seen you know for ourselves really we need yeah. someone to show us the way kind of thing yeah so let's go into so I'm talking to both of you together because you both worked on uh, a particular piece of piece of work so I'll go back to Rory for the beginning of this answer but yeah so can you talk about what you've been working on together so if you want to just introduce it and then I'll come back to Alessandra to add any different points.
2: Yeah okay thanks Amit. So um, a couple of years ago we we came together as as Alexandra mentioned a mutual friend sort of connected us and we started throwing around a few ideas and we ended up on this idea I think prompted a little bit as well by the the funding call but it it definitely was in the area that we're interested in and that was around communication of sustainability. Mm. Um, We felt that there was The stories and the narratives around climate change and around sustainability weren't necessarily yielding the outcomes that that we wanted or say we wanted, but weren't weren't really pushing the agenda far far enough. They were were really sort of speaking to the existing agenda, which Mm. really, as we would call, is a kind of green growth or green capitalist agenda, which essentially is maintaining the status quo Mm. in terms of the economy yes introducing some changes to the way that let's say governments businesses organizations operate but fundamentally it's not a- addressing that big drive for consumption and growth mm-hmm. uh, most of the solutions that are considered and proposed around green capitalism are very much sort of market based mm-hmm. they're not looking at at kind of fundamentally you know revising or or considering how we actually consume resource yeah and i think for us having that as a kind of um a concern almost a problem like Mm. the problem statement and then thinking about the communication of those that future world that we could that we could you know be living in Mm. we felt that there was what we we call the information deficit gap so that there is the information that's that's communicated out to people Mm from from different organizations from different areas is, is not is not doing enough. <laughs> it's not yeah. doing enough and it's not critiquing in the way that it should be. Mm. So we, we sort of felt, well actually there's a real opportunity and we, we ended up going down looking at um, a very particular Industry or sub-industry, which was the augmented reality sector. So those organisations and companies that that create stories using virtual reality. So we use that as a little sort of case study, and as and as it happens, and as the work's developed, we've got more and more interested in it, and we realise actually this is applicable to not well, actually not just communicators, but but kind of organisations and you know businesses more broadly, and, and maybe we'll come to that in a minute. But yeah, so we wanted to try and help and support the way that. Virtual reality, augmented reality, organisations, but let's call them communicators broadly. How they could communicate more effectively about um, sustainability and climate change.
0: Hmm. Okay, so I'm going to go to Alexandra. Is there anything you want to add to that before uh, asking another question?
1: Yeah, I, I just was thinking—is that the we had conversations about. What, what were the limitations around existing content, existing stories? And our lovely uh, postdoc researcher, um, Gemma Bridge, she, she, um, has done a amazing job of doing a desk based assessment. So she, she, Went through social media. It was it was within the uh, sort of what you could do with the internet, looking at different stories that are, are out there. Whether it was from a Greenpeace um, campaign film on reducing plastic and tackling the sort of British government on how much plastics has shipped overseas, or a game where there were. Uh, six stories and you could make decisions about what happened to people and or six individuals and their own six stories and you made decisions of what these people should do a bit like one of those old flip books you know go to page 29 if you want this to happen but that followed through um, this amazing game and you you could learn you could have a green sort of calculator where where your decisions leading to more sustainable behaviours or were they less sustainable and mm-hmm. so the audience or the, the the player could experience that variation it's called climb under pressure I'll give it a little plug and so looking at this what we noticed was there was a real there was a sort of a spectrum of of what we describe as a critical activity mm-hmm. so uh are you just describing an issue are you explaining why the issue is happening explaining how it's happening mm-hmm. are you commenting on the issues around the issue of sustainability or climate and are you suggesting a more uh, mitigation or, or mm-hmm. activities that might solve the issue so reducing mm-hmm. plastic changing pressuring the government to reduce the amount of plastic shipped overseas mm-hmm. but actually making sure it's properly recycled mm-hmm. and All so
0: that, that them to kind of ban it outright, you know, like starting to see single use bans coming in and so on.
1: That's right. That's, that's right. That kind of, so that spectrum of uh, critical activity, just describing, explaining why, explaining how, or evaluating or actually suggesting uh, mitigation, Mm -hmm. solutions, actions. And we saw that um, a lot of the stories were really weighted towards the description and explanation what what's going on how and why mm. and that and then you might have a whole sort of five minutes on the what and how and why mm. and then maybe sign a petition like yeah. that and, and it's stopped at the more deeper commentary mm. and the more greater suggestion of of what um needs to be done to tackle the issue mm. and that if you have the majority of content that's just suggesting explaining and essentially being very, quite uh, quite sad to look at, and it, and that sort of people could be put off with that. Oh my goodness, this is really overwhelming. Like, for example, the in the series two of Frozen Planet two, with the BBC and David Attenborough, the last episode, episode six, is meant to be a reflective moment. Mm-hmm. When you look at it, it's, it has 54 minutes of conversations with different scientists in different parts of the world, all explaining the causes and consequences of mm. um, the climate change and the impacts and lack of sustainability. Mm. And I remember watching it, going, "Oh, you know, this is mm. <laughs> this is a bit this is difficult. It's hard to watch." Three minutes, and I and I actually went and looked at the timer. Three minutes were spent on solutions. Mm. And that's I find that really uh, that that's if you've got that bigger flagship program, I can understand the need to sort of want to engage people and to draw people into care Mm. about the issue. But you can also risk switching them off. Mm. If you had spent 54 minutes saying we know these issues, but this is how we can do it. This is what you can do. These are examples of what can be done. This is a systemic level of change that we need. Mm. Can you get your head around that? Here's some answers, here's mm. some information. That's really pro- positive and proactive. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that would and so my drive in 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 and part of the, what we've done is to is to get that idea across that mm. if we could spend more time communicating what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Then that would be great. But even and I I remember watching there was an advert, like 30 sec- 20 second, 20-second advert uh last night, which was all about recycle more, but it was done with the pink face of a cat with blue eyes like mm. hypnotizing the audience saying recycle your electronics recycle your mm. electronics it was fantastic and i was like i've got to find that and it was really sort of do do this do this message <laughs> if you had every if you had every output go output going talk to your mp about the strategy the climate strategy mm. the uk is mm. coming out with do this do that change your system it's not down to the individual mm. Then you would actually enable people in society to have a much more empowered role. Mm. And that, so, that long story short is that that's what we were beginning to see mm. when evaluating a lot of the content about the sustainability challenges and mm. climate change and climate impacts. Mm. And that's where a lot of the drive, what we were seeing for what we've sort of created out of this project sort of came from.
0: Mm. I want to just sort of. Pick out there what you said about, you know, the the time allotted. I think that's very reflective in the way that resources are allocated. In the oh, there's all this green growth and stuff. And it's like, it's less than 10% of the global economy kind of thing. You know, like the amount of money that we spend, we, we, say we invest ridiculous amounts, say 90% in oil production, and then 5% on uh, some wind farms. It's like, oh, how are we going to ever catch up? Well, you won't because you, you're not trying to. <laughs>
2: Yeah. yeah so it could oh, be a right. political i was just going to say it could be a sort of a political editorial decision going along uh, alongside that, that we're not aware of in many of these different programs i mean perhaps that's not um if we talk about the kind of general spectrum of different mm. types of uh, media that we receive, mm. there probably isn't the kind of that that level of editorial scrutiny. But certainly on something like David Attenborough. I mean, I know that there have been questions mm. about why why certain episodes even have been removed you know there's Mm. a question recently about one of the episodes about the kind of the the what next which is Mm. which is really addressing what you're saying there Alexandra and it's 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 had people (laughs) outside of the organization (laughs) questioning hold on a second that goes against the grain of of our kind of almost philosophy and modus operandi for for society and that will start raising some very difficult questions about fossil fuels and connections with our political system and everything else so mm. i suspect for a lot of the media probably not not you know the majority but but an important and you know a kind of heavily weighted proportion there are those sorts of decisions as well sort of political decisions that that will prevent that kind of communication that you describe Alexandra actually getting out
0: Mm-hmm. yeah and but uh, there's also kind of internalized market logic for want of a better term like I know speaking about climate change on here I know that it's you know people don't want to be off putting and they don't want to put people off but we kind of uh, have to get beyond that and start mm-hmm. really having uncomfortable conversations and, mm-hmm. because otherwise we're going to be dealing with more uncomfortable results than just
2: you know upset yeah. someone with some words but I think those uncomfortable conversations hit at the heart of our society mm-hmm. you know it would it would turn on its head where the power is um the, the 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 comfortable lifestyles that many of us you know myself included in that I'm not saying I'm you know I'm part I'm part of that as well and I recognize that and I look at where I you know where I live in Leeds and I look mm-hmm. at my peers as well and friends and if we in many ways some of the solutions proposed or some of the ideas proposed would would take a big a big kind of cut into that in terms of our lifestyle choices Mm. and and that is that is not what people want to hear and I think that that's the kind of the difficult ground I think or that line that we a lot of communicators tread at the minute is how can we bring people on board and make them understand how important it is that they may have to make some sort of compromise inverted commas <laughs> to their lifestyle people don't want to hear that and obviously the elite who are in powerful positions don't want to hear that so I think I think it is a very very difficult conversation that's mm-hmm. a difficult it, it's it's problematic on so many different levels mm-hmm.
0: and and you know the elephant in the room is it pushes against the powerful. It, it, it yeah. impacts their yeah. interests, their profits, and yeah. they make money out of this system. And changing will cost them a lot of money. It's investment. We know they like don't like doing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unless it's guaranteed. And so you know, it's there's a lock-in because they also own all the media outlets. And yeah. Yep. Yeah. John Alexandra.
1: I was gonna say is that this this probably speaks to the 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 knowledge, uh, you know, and my understanding of the the economic and structural system that we work in, the institutional system that we work in, is that historically where we are now in terms of our industrial development and uh, progression is is developed over hundreds of years Mm -hmm. of, of the market economy and the focus on growth and thinking about the processes behind that, what we see that enable that sort of growth and maintained the economic system. And the, the global economic system since the sort of mid-1960s, 70s has, has become progressively more and more complex, more and more integrated, more and more systemically intertwined in networks and through sort of global flows of you know, producing whether it's cars or airplanes or right. or ships or the products, you know, if we've got 90% of the products sold in in, in the UK, I mean this is I'm slightly picking a figure out there, so no quotes on that coming from overseas, rather meaning that we don't produce what we sort of buy and sell in the UK, it's sort of through these systems. Is that to actually address the climate change impacts and to, to, to really shift that the structures it's very very complicated it take it will take mm, mm, systematic and progressive policy change Mm. societal change in terms of mindset and culture it's I'm not saying it's impossible but it but we have to understand that it to dismantle and shift and repurpose that system takes a lot of work Mm. so scratching on the surface and looking at giving the individual responsibility is not it's it's complete diverting away from the degree of structural and systemic and political change that we need Mm. and there are a lot of barriers to that and but it it's how how do we think at what stage where's the where's the tipping point where politicians leadership those in power the capital owners of large portion of the world's capital and large firms begin to alter and be able to alter their systems and then and lead those supply chains too and the networks that structure their production of goods and services to actually lead that to, to change mm-hmm. and we don't have a global government but it's not it's it's going to be through history that these changes, you know, mm-hmm. our future, other people's history, that these changes take place. Mm-hmm. But we have to start somewhere. And I feel as if it's very, I don't want to go down a negative route, but it's just <laughs> understanding the complexity of the and the size of the change. Mm-hmm. So thinking about how that happens is that we have to start talking about it and have to have a much better and I think when I read articles and hear on the news and it's it's easier to sit within the what's happening and why is it happening? Mm. And and even the ex- absolute experts, you know, the, the Kate Raworths, who come up with the Donut Economics. And she's done an amazing job at, re- at highlighting the seven ways, to, you know, to, we can start adjusting these major structural issues. Mm. And I highly recommend her her research. They've got an amazing it donut economics action lab or deal sort of.org, I think it is. But it's worth looking at her because she's really trying to tackle some of these major, major structural issues, she's done an amazing job at trying at translating that. Mm-hmm. And that's the message we need to get out a lot more. We need to sort of uh, get people listening and looking and governments paying attention. Mm. And, and that probably takes us back to the rec- research what we've done and, and what we've developed in trying to help communicators and professional storytellers, professional communicators re-engage with the research and start thinking about it in a, in a deeper level to ensure that content is is really enriched by mm-hmm. research and evidence and experts of experience and, and taking that step towards shifting the the narratives and discourse around uh how the society is functioning and what we need to change Mm -hmm.
0: yeah but i i think that you know we've we've just got so used to this we can't change the rich kind of thing that you know from everything you know cost of living stuff to warm spaces to whatever i mean you know and the cost of living is related to climate and so on we'll we'll probably touch on but you've got this you know all these prescriptions of oh how to save money and live thrifty and you live in a small house and this that and the other but you know don't do anything political, don't write to your MP, don't join others in a group, don't activate Mm. don't, don't start doing something yourself, don't, you know, Mm. Start growing your own food or anything, you know, you're all independent living people. But, you know, be connected to this grid of gas, water, electricity, that you must get from a centralized body, because we're all free, separate little individuals. Like, Mm. those kind of things, like you say, in terms of narrative, they always pushed to the edge you know and I think we've got beyond now now we're getting beyond that change your light bulb and buy a, a, a thicker plastic bag and moving into kind of more meaty territory but yeah I still think that that's a big part of it and that's the really really difficult thing to get mm. which you see as well within and that trickles down as well you know like I the example that i always give is a you know the a sustainability officer or practitioner flying to hawaii from here to give a talk on how we all need to be greener and so on so- what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. So um, I'll let you respond first, Alexandra, and then I'll come to Rory for any additional points. Mm. Like, if, do you want to add anything to that or kind of respond to anything?
1: I always I think uh, part, of, part of my sort of background sort of research in my PhD looked at the institutional cultural sort of bases for the way capitalistic or national business systems or, you know, national capitalisms worked. Mm. And in the UK, we have a strong ideology towards arm's length relationships mm. so very much uh, what's called liberal market economies that was amazing sort of varieties of capitalism mm. researched on 2001 by hall and Suskis. And they talked about this spectrum between liberal market economies and coordinated market economies, which you'd see in Scandinavia, Germany, France, and coordinated market economies talk about or focus on closer collaborative relationships between labour, education systems, government and and less arm's length. So we have to remember the ideology of the economic system at at a national level is useful to understand now a lot lot of that research has been critiqued and and you know we look at Southeast Asia and they have really different systems of economic structures but my point being that the the prevailing political and political economic ideology that we see particularly with the conservative government is 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 a is a historical process that's that's sort of systemic as as a ideal um institutional freight approach to the economy mm. and that it's still the market system um wherever you are we've still got a capitalist capitalistic system globally but some economic systems some economies will be more sort of resistant because of that ideology to change mm. than others mm. And it's certainly within the UK, it's probably me trying to explain why we're seeing this downward pressure on responsibility given to the individual. Mm. Is because of the the historical way in which the our economy and our political approaches have evolved. Mm. Um, so I was just trying to explain that point is that if we can get to the nuts and bolts of understanding why we have these sort of approaches and this language and this pressure on the individual rather than the collective, which you might, you'd see in other parts of the world, then that is another process we have to consider when looking to change the system. And I'm probably going deep dive into it. I was sort of hugging deep dive into economic geography here, but it's trying to understand these processes and different Layers of how well can we communicate that, and how, who do we need to talk to to say right? We, we actually need to shift, and we know what's happening, but this is what we need to move towards. And how do we tackle these really embedded processes and approaches? I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to be. I want to be positive, optimistic, and positive is is always a good approach when thinking about challenging things. But we have to know what. Well, I guess we have to know what we're up against. <laughs> you know, yeah. to be able to fix it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, you know, I accept the fact that we're not built for these, even though we may have been instrumental in causing the issues, we're not built to deal with them, not, not on an individual basis, at least, anyway. Uh, so, Rory,
2: I'm just going to go to you to let you add anything there. or I, I, I think Alexandra summed it up really nicely or certainly brought that sort of level of discussion there in terms of systems and structures, which Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, most people, you you know, you you really need a a degree in economic geography to to, to fully understand that, you know, it's Mm -hmm. complex stuff. But I mean, I would sort of boil down... What I see is a kind of a key point here, which which I've come back to now a couple of times. It's just the politics of sustainability, you know, the mm-hmm. politics of sustainable development. I think, quite, you know, a lot of people see it as a very apolitical topic. Mm-hmm. You know, and Alexandria probably say, well, it's more than that. We've got to look at the economic structures. And I agree with you. Mm-hmm. But they're obviously very connected, aren't they? And I would say, well, bringing that conversation and bringing that, bringing to light some of those difficult Issues and tensions. I think that is the challenge for us in a way, in terms of our toolkit. And I think it's something that we, in a way, and if we think about, you know, how we move this forward, you know, where where do we integrate? uncomfortable questions you know we talk about in in uh, universities we often or sometimes talk about uncomfortable pedagogy which is Mm. where you put your students into a slightly difficult position Mm. not physically but what i mean is in terms of you stretching them you asking them questions that maybe they're not prepared for you know in Mm. in a a deliberate way and, and not to make them feel ignorance or anything like that but to try and get them to think in a different way and i wonder if there's a kind of uncomfortable pedagogy or an uncomfortable practice Mm. that we need to be considering within our communication to really bring to the fore some of these really yeah ultimately political questions that are shaping the way our societies run and ultimately shaping what needs to happen in the future
0: Mm. Mm. yeah okay so that that's got me thinking but um what I'll do is, so Rory, I want to touch on, and I can't think of a natural way to kind of, uh, and I don't want to wait to kind of naturally yep. squeeze it in, but uh, I know from because I came to the event on the toolkit that that you did, so yep. I know from that event that you talked about um, palm oil specifically, and that you've have been out there and and been to palm oil uh, plantations, so. Uh, yeah, I just want you to talk a little bit about that. So maybe if you can do it, like tiny brief introduction of why it's important and then what, you know, the difficulty with it, because I think it's a really good example because it's very easy to kind of say, well, get all the palm oil out of all the, the sweets and treats or stop eating all of those because they're bad for you because of X, Y, Z. But it's in so many other things. And then it's like, well, some people are earning money off that and it's not just rich, you know, <clears throat> one rich person. So, yeah, just take us into that and give us a bit of a,
2: an explanation on that. Yeah. OK. Yeah. So just in terms of this 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 topic, really, or the, it's really a, I see it as a case study, but I think it's a really nice case study that reflects the kind of broader issues around yeah the sort of sustainability, sustainable development, how we, you know, how we position it. In, in all of the different other parts of, of, of life, society, economic structures, livelihoods, consumption practices, behavior changes. I think it's a really nice example. It's partly why I've got, I've kind of caught the palm oil bug, or uh, I did uh, when I, I moved to Malaysia in 2010, and I was there for six years working at a university. And I, yeah, I'm, I shifted very much from looking at natural resources and water primarily, which mm-hmm. was what my PhD was on. And I ended up looking at agricultural commodities, particularly palm oil. Why it's interesting <laughs> is um, oh, so a couple of reasons it's consumed by all of us on a mm-hmm. daily basis. I mean, it's, it, it- I'm, I'm sure there's some people who go to great lengths to try and remove palm oil from from their daily consumption mm-hmm. practices. But I think they have to they would have to make a really big effort. They would have to be studying uh, ingredients labels. Um, they'd have to be going online. They might have to be looking on, uh, you know, different lists of, of, of different mm-hmm. ingredients. You know, It's there from soaps, shampoos, breakfast cereal, ice cream, biscuits. Mm-hmm. It's in our well, it will be in our cars, you know, in terms of fuel, perhaps mm. not in this country, but in certain parts of the world, it's used as a biofuel. Yeah, there are so many different uses. I mean, it's re- it's referred to as the golden crop, mm. largely by the countries and the 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 populations that that live off palm oil in a way you know mm. so i'm thinking here about countries in southeast asia you know they they see it as the miracle crop it's mm. so versatile it mm. grows so quickly so efficiently in a relatively small amount of land when you compare it with say rapeseed oil uh, sunflower other other types of vegetable oils so f- for for lots of good reasons actually environmental before you get on to land use change and deforestation and climate change actually if you were to re- you know if you remove palm oil out of the the equation you would need a lot more land in order to create the same amount of vegetable oil yeah. and that that's the big argument that the the industry and the industry lobby groups and governments as well who are obviously investing within palm oil because of its importance to their economies that's the big environmental argument they say you know remove palm oil from southeast asia uh, because of all the all the um Um, or the 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 evidence of uh, deforestation and land use change you'll have to take out a good chunk of the amazon that's already under threat right and here we're thinking about similar geographies palm oil only really grows in hot and wet conditions and one of the you know equivalent spatial landscapes uh that, that, that could grow it then is is Um, latin america particularly the amazon basin also Mm. west and central africa as well and that's Mm. a kind of a frontier frontier area as well that that a lot of uh, industries are looking at Um, but yeah you you remove it from southeast asia indonesia malaysia you're going to have to take out a huge chunk of land Mm. that's already under pressure and so that is a that is a i would say a kind of sound argument when you look at it on a kind of balanced spreadsheet you know if you look mm-hmm. at it on a spreadsheet of amount of land <laughs> mm-hmm. then yes that's fine i think some of the issue you know when you start digging down a little bit further on well what can we do about this crop then if we accept that we are consuming it in a hu- in high volumes okay mm-hmm. what can we do about it you know can we can we find an alternative can we remove it from our diet okay and that there's been a big conversation around that you know, do we need those biscuits and 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 cereals and all those sorts of things and can we find <laughs> well lots of people lots of people do i probably this morning i'm trying to think i probably had some sort of palm oil maybe we all did it becomes more murky actually it comes back to some of the conversations that alexandra drew on in terms of understanding economic systems here and economies if you remove palm oil from your diet and if let's say europe north america removes palm oil from its diet what happens yes we might need to replace it with another vegetable oil but you're not stopping other parts of the world in consuming that product okay that that and so we see china and india as the major major consumers of palm oil and in some ways what we do in europe actually doesn't really affect the way that the industry deliver you know the, the way that the industry operationalizes itself you know um so this whole issue around sustainable palm oil right and so to to, to sort of move the 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 conversation to well can we make it sustainable yes there are big efforts to do that going over 20 years now really if you look at the the sort of origins of the Mm. the the discourse around sustainable palm oil it's all evidence-based scientific you know science-based targets to try and understand well where can we grow it how can we grow it can we remove you know uh, carcinogenic uh, fertilizers can we do it in a, a way that limits water use and pollution out the back end of these factories you know there's lots of lots of work very good work actually i would say that's gone into building this standard building this certification model however as i said china and india at the minute are not procuring sustainable palm oil so what really whatever we do which essentially is about 20% of the the global market is procuring sustainable palm oil so there's Mm. 80% of world production and world consumption Mm. that is that is procure you know is using what we would call conventional palm oil and that's Mm. the sort of unsustainable palm oil so we're really having to understand those economies those Mm. big macroeconomic drivers really for change Mm. and have we I feel we have to build that into our argument okay the other thing that i wanted to mention and you said yourself absolutely rightly is often the livelihoods of those farmers who grow it are not discussed and not considered Mm. Um, so when for example iceland iceland not the country the uh, the 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 retailer uh, a few years ago tried to boycott palm oil which was a very very interesting move when you think about it as a sort of policy Mm. and there's been a lot of critique of that organization uh, on the way that they did it and they ended up having to backtrack because it was it was so complicated so difficult for Mm. them to actually remove it completely from their own brand so they they weren't they weren't going to remove it from let's say you no, know they Unilever. weren't
0: banning anyone else from doing no it, exactly so you need to make theirs yeah
2: exactly their home brand so they tried it and they had to backtrack because it was so complicated again due to the kind of complexity of supply chains <laughs> coming back to the you know Alexandra's, uh bread and butter there but one of the issues that wasn't spoken about was well what about the smallholder farmers who rely on palm oil in those geographies so let's say in Southeast Asia if you boycott and you you cut them out of the equation what do they do next you know how do they earn a living do they just sell their palm oil non-sustainable palm oil to a mill who will then uh, process it and send it off to india and china maybe they won't be able to sell so that's another thing so there, there was a big question i felt a very big question about how those farmers uh, the livelihoods of those communities and there are many Roughly, it's a very crude figure, but we think about 50 percent of all of palm oil globally is produced by smallholders. So not these big plantation firms. And again, in our minds and in our kind of, you know, the way that we imagine these geographies where palm oil is grown, we think of these vast um, monocrops, you know, over uh, monocrop plantations over thousands of hectares yes they do exist mm. but we also see a lot of small holders and cooperatives mm. work in this space as well who don't get all the benefits of a big corporation right so they're very much in a different <clears throat> livelihood sort of scenario mm. and and so for me it was very interesting now that's not to say you know if you're looking at it from a climate change point of view, you might say well hold on a second we've o- we've only got so many years to limit this warming and if if palm oil is part of the problem then surely we've got to make some kind of strong and 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 fairly assertive interventions and maybe we have to find a way to look after these farmers okay Mm. fair enough I, i i would say let's look at those Let's look at that sort of welfare approach for those farmers. But that wasn't being talked about, particularly mm. by the company I mentioned before. It was like, no, we removed them. You know, that they are unsustainable. We're going to do something good. We're going to protect our brand. There was no question, as far as I could tell, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe they were trying, there was some sort of initiative to maybe support an NGO that in a way was training these, you know, farmers. But I didn't see it. I saw it mm. as a very kind of almost a political move Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a branding, mm-hmm. branding move. So yeah, that 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 in a in a in a way, you, you see the complexity of this particular this particular crop. And because we all consume it, it, it's not, as I say, it's one of those, it feels quite niche in a way, mm-hmm. but actually it has global implications. Uh and it affects so many of us, if not all of us, since it touches us all in some way mm-hmm. that actually it's quite relevant um, in, in many respects to all of us. Mm-hmm. And
0: I, I, for me, that's a question of, well, do we have any obligation towards these people? Like, does anybody have any obligation towards anybody? Right? Because we kind of have to answer that question because it's like, who whose obligation is it? Well, first of all, is it anybody's? Is, yeah. is there an obligation? And I think the answer will probably be yes. And then you oh. go from there.
2: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, you, you, and so you start getting into questions of values. You start getting into questions around, you know, considering, you know, how do you consider others and stakeholders? Let's say, if you take an organisation, how do you how do you consider stakeholders beyond your 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 customer? Mm. You know, what about those adjacent communities that are affected by that? product that you produce and how do you consider how do you consider the environment as an organization you know that's one of your <clears throat> we would call a stakeholder in a way it's not mm-hmm. a kind of person what about the ecology that that, that that nobody speaks for really they don't have a voice in, in in questions around sustainability yes there are people that can speak on behalf of of the ecology and flora and fauna but but again who, who who's thinking about them? where's the obligation towards them and i think again palm is a good example of that because there are so many dependent people on on this crop. And if we're going to Mm. say, okay, we've identified it as a kind of a bad one. And I don't think actually generally people think that because of Mm. the the the, well, I I didn't mention China and India, the the most people who use it in those those geographies, those places, or a lot of people who use it use it as a standard cooking oil, you know, Mm. to live off every day. We're not talking here about companies making biscuits, although obviously Mm. that will happen. We're talking about people on very low incomes who Mm. can't afford other oils vegetable oils to to to, to, to cook with mm-hmm. so it provides a very important you know in terms of food security it's actually providing quite an important part of that of you know that sort of equation so mm-hmm. yeah who who's thinking about all of these different people mm-hmm. so yeah unraveling all of those different strands there is no quick fire solution I th- and i think the sustainable palm oil sort of the concept around it, the, the conversations that have happened, that the, the standard, in a way, the label is one. Is part of the the question or part of the sort of conversation that we need to have to try and move things to a better place. But it it requires lots of sort of further understanding and further conversations and thinking you know, thinking more broadly, just to sort of finish on one of the more recent pieces of research that I've read, or ideas from research, is looking at landscape approaches, or mm-hmm. they sometimes call them a bit of a fancy word, jurisdictional approaches, where you look at a landscape as it's So imagine in your head. know the landscape of Leeds. let's say a rural or or sort of a uh, not yorkshire if you can picture all of those together and understand how the sort of aggregate impacts of those different organizations or businesses or Mm. landowners in that landscape and rather focusing on kind of unit level improvements if we can Mm. consider the landscape Mm -hmm. and we can consider how those interact with one another we might be in a better place as opposed to, oh, this farm here has a certification for X standard, but mm-hmm. that farm there doesn't. But ultimately the water course is still affected because you know the the, the farm adjacent is is not applying any kind of standard, then what's the point? <laughs> you know, and, mm-hmm. that, and I think that the, we start getting into the critique of standards and certification mm-hmm. standards. But I think looking more holistically generally is is the way to, to go here.
0: Mm. And I think if someone is listening to that and they hear that and they kind of think well asia uh, that's asia you know at the same time you can bring it directly home of like how many you know how many of your local shops the local branches of tesco metro and co-op they wouldn't even be able to exist if they didn't have all of those products oh yeah they were full of palm oil so if they yeah. go those stores go as well which you know means other amenities that are provided yeah. by those stores as well so like it is you know you can always relate it to the immediate as well as the exotic so,
2: oh oh definitely it's ev- it's everywhere and I, I didn't mention the cost <laughs> of it i think perhaps i did right at the beginning not only is the the environmental benefits in some way benefits inverted commas of this crop versus others or the advantage let's say it's mm. in if you look at there's a i I've used this figure in in lectures quite a lot when I present on palm oil and you see over time the cost of palm oil and it basically fluctuates right at the bottom of the of the you know the graph versus sunflower raped it all the yeah. other big big crops so again of course that will be driving driving the whole kind of story and, and and driving people's decisions whether it's an organization or a, an industry a government mm-hmm. so again that sort of reinforces the miracle crop but it reinforces that point you made about tesco's being able to procure it and having having it on its shelves that we can all benefit from you know it, it, that's another factor mm-hmm.
0: okay so alexandra uh, uh, you haven't you haven't drifted off during that, uh, which is good. Sorry, uh, no, no, no. I mean, it's good. It's good to have a comprehensive answer, but, it, but like because we're dealing with such a big thing, that you you just never have enough time, do you, to unpack it? Yeah. So we'll go into the toolkit. I think we kind of outlined what is why it's needed. I think we kind of covered those bases. But basically, we need something. I mean, in a way, I kind of see it as well as a bit of um, like a six sigma kind of kaizen you know continual professional development tool of like what are we doing how are we doing it like what can we do different what effects is it having all that kind of thing of like you know review and 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 reproduce so yeah I want you to kind of give us the introduction kind of Mm -hmm. what it is what it does as I say, we've done the kind of why it's needed how how it's kind of come about so what is the toolkit and what is it doing
1: okay so the critical we have what we've just named as the critical sustainability stories tool and it is a series of questions within um, six different themes mm-hmm. so four five six at most i think questions with, um, within each theme so the first theme is uh, critical action and as we talked about earlier, what, what are you doing? Are you describing, explaining uh, through your story, explaining how, why, uh, commenting, evaluating or, or offering sort of ideas as to solutions and strategies to mitigate sustainability mm-hmm. challenges and,
2: uh,
1: and climate change issues? So that's so this critical sustainability tool, tool is is really about uh, when stories are being developed for uh, audiences, whether that's a film or a virtual reality experience, or uh, an advert, or theatre production, any kind of form of communication, any kind of whether it's digital or live and in person, whenever you're telling a story, and and telling a story about uh, sustainability and climate change, you need to think about the, the basis of the information that you're gathering. So, your story, as we start, as I mentioned, may have particular activity, whether it's describe, explaining, or suggesting mitigating solutions. But you also have to think about the audience. So, the second theme is ask questions about audience. Well, who are you focusing on? Who's your target audience? Do you want to incorporate suggestions for, for action? Uh, you know, writing to your MP, uh, joining a group uh, or, or what type of behaviour or action are you seeking for those audiences to do? But we also ask include questions about how would the script and the language that you use shape people's understanding of information about sustainability and climate issues? Mm. So this is where we're trying to engage in the process of uh, how does the story shape audience's understanding? Mm. And the questions are there to be prompts for the storytellers, the, the producers, you know, professional communicators to uh, they're, they're prompts to lead to discussion and questioning mm. um, by the, the storytellers, producers. They're there to create reflection and learning so we 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 moved from asking about what are you doing description explanation solution orientating to thinking about the audience about how script and language can really shape a story Mm -hmm. and i've spoken to one script writer who really picked up on those two points saying that is exactly what i do Mm -hmm. and and sort of he he worked in adult and children sort of out creative content and he said that that's really helpful in terms of thinking about how can i use language to convey the story because mm. it's audio a lot of it's audio and mm-hmm. um, uh, language telling so those are the first two themes the next theme is the storytelling journey mm. and the reason why we included this uh this theme storytelling journey is because we recognize that storytelling the, the pr- the process of producing the story, whether in an augmented reality experience, virtual reality, film, um, podcast, sort of audio audio story, you know, it's the actual production process as a journey mm. itself. And there are different points in that journey that you can reflect on mm. the information that you're conveying within the story and how you're conveying it. Mm. So uh, we ask questions about do you have an advisory board that you can use the tool to reflect on these issues about the information that you've got and how you're telling about it. How is technology shaping this story that you're telling? Because when we were working with the augmented reality, virtual reality uh, producers, we realised that the technology itself was potentially limiting... The story in terms of, con- or not limiting, but constraining it or pushing it into a certain area, because there's only certain things that the technology could be used for when sharing, when telling the story. So that was a point of a question about how is the technology? Is it limiting you? Is it constraining you? Is it benefiting you? Just having that conscious awareness and that that, that critical thinking approach to everything that you're doing in producing the story. Mm. And I should say that the storytellers are amazing Experts, they're critical thinkers already. And so the tool is really about just advancing and honing and org- providing an organizing framework for mm-hmm. thinking about sustainability. Mm-hmm. So the next three themes that we have questions within are context, uh, quality of information, and justice. Mm-hmm. So for context, that really relates to geography. Being both geographers, we wanted to make sure that we situated an understanding of how the location on which the story is situated, how was that being reflected and thought about in terms of if you're just looking at one location are you recognizing the connections and the relationships with other places and that's certainly something that was so far today that we've really talked about that there's so much internet interconnection globally mm. you know if we removed all pi- pi- palm oil sort of production doesn't mean that our biscuits and our cereals cost a l- heck of a lot more because mm. they're not using palm oil well mm. yes so we've got a, that clear clear connection so the context uh, qu- theme includes questions that prompt thoughts uh, or uh, thoughts and responses and discourse about how does the how do about those relationships between places what activities are you telling or sharing within the story are they operating a local local level or are you looking at issues operating at a global level you know big like you know temperature changes globally mm. so what type of information are you sharing and how does the context and the geography shape that mm. and the relationship shape that So the next theme is the the quality of information. Mm. And this is where we get perhaps a bit nerdy when it comes to research and being researchers. So these questions ask about where is the information coming from? Is it evidence based? Can you trace the quality of that information? Is it from a research publication mm. by an academic or an, a reputable organization such as United you know, Nations or, mm. or the IPCC? How accurate is the information? Is it trustworthy? You mm. know, can you cross check that the information you're using is valid? And, and that's, the, that's the sort of good quality standard because we wanted to make sure through this, this critical sustainability mm-hmm. stories tool was that we got storytellers to really engage and close that information deficit and, and reduce the gap between the highly quality information that's out there and, the, and what the information, what information was used by audience members, whether it's in text on a visual or through story or through audio or through a game. It's just really making sure that there's good quality information, because what we found and what, what was when talking to storytellers like, I want to tell this story and it they've got an idea of the story they want to tell. Mm. But quite quickly, we could say, well, let's check the validity of that idea, because mm-hmm. the idea that you may want to convey about a sort of a dystopian future yeah. or a, a, a brilliantly solved future is that we can tell you by heck, there will be research that tells you about whether that's a reality or not. There'll mm-hmm. be information that we can find to validate your or test and check against your idea. And it just means that there's less opportunity for uh, variation on truths. That we can you, you, the 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 storytellers can say actually that is information that is true and that I and it's powerful and we can share that information in a powerful way and, and an emotive way and and that and I wanted to to and, and it's all about getting that accuracy and the validity and the, the truthfulness and the trustworthiness. We know that there's such an issue about fake news mm. and and misinformation mm. and if storytellers can say no I can ground everything and then the 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 credits list or the attendant notes to the Mm. film or a a VR experience I'm going to give you the links to all that information and we've had really good feedback on that basis Mm. and one of our jobs is to actually produce sort of a list of really reliable sources and help with getting sources to Mm. to, of information so that's that's the quality of of, um, information so so far we've had critical activity audience storytelling journey context quality information mm. as six themes that we introduce these sort of reflective questions on out and on rather and and so the last theme is that justice and this is where and this is very much something that we worked through that with you know i think which came up in the workshop we attended mm. is that uh, we wanted to really prioritize the the notion that there is actions we need to take that there's justice is a really useful term so Mm. is environmental justice ecological justice you know who is representing the planet and and ensuring that the the needs of animals and flora fauna Mm. and environments and communities that live in close to or or vulnerable to environment environmental change are 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 engaged with Mm. and it links into political justice and social justice because we know it's not just climate change is, is not, not just about the environment and the wet, the weather, it's, mm. it's about the, all the different groups of people and systems that uh, are shaped and impacted by it. Mm. So the, the, the justice element really uh, has questions of does the story reflect on who is responsible for the changes happening and responsible for the solutions for these issues mm-hmm. and who is being affected and how? Mm-hmm. So it, it triggers all of those new, possibly not from the workshop. That was that w- w- what came out and we developed that theme more clearly mm-hmm. um, to make it more direct in terms of considering justice. So. This is the six themes are really, a, it, they're a tool for reflection and thinking for mm. storytellers. Mm. It is an open tool. You, and and what I've always said is, you know, users can, those using it can add their own questions that may mm. prompt uh, uh, something that's relevant to their stories. We've used... Cre- Questions as a way to increase that critical thinking and reflection within the storytelling process, because what we want through asking all quite a lot of questions is that we want to um, have outputs that are enriched. We want to change the behaviours of the, the storytellers so that they grow their own global challenge literacy. So that they have a de- a higher level of understanding, mm-hmm. a more advanced level of understanding of the complex issues that we've been talking about, mm-hmm. and they're able to bring that understanding into the stories that they tell. Mm-hmm. And we we know that there will be lots of different factors that shape an input into the end story, mm-hmm. and we just hope mm-hmm. that this um, sort of dis- discussion-based, reflective process really uh, supports. The, the development of these stories that, and and their shifting focus towards looking at how do we resolve these issues. Mm. So quality of information, so improve the stories, by co- increase quality of information and improving the storytelling in terms of moving it to being able to inv- create visions of a future and how to get yeah. there for audiences.
0: Yeah, not just it's dystopia, we can do things about it. So what I want mm. to do, uh, we've got 15 minutes, so... I'm going to try and wrap everything up in a nicely little bundle, uh, which of course we can't do with climate change. But uh, (laughs) so what I'm thinking is uh, because I think it's worth us touching on UBI, just even if we just mention it for five minutes or whatever, just a kind of consideration. So what I want to do, I'm going to start with you, Rory. I want to do like, can you do five minutes of considering like some consideration of UBI, but also talking about uh, post-growth, limits to growth, that kind of thing. So, yep, nice little challenge for you.
2: (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I need a whole day to consider my (laughs) answer. Oh, my
0: God. (laughs) And then I'm going to do the same thing with you, Alexandra. And then hopefully that won't run too much over five minutes, and then we'll have, like, five minutes or so at the end to do a little wrap-up, and and, because you've got to dash off. So... Yeah, let's see how we go with this. So, oh, God. do you want to? Well, do you want to start maybe with your kind of the bits that you want to say about post growth or limits to growth, uh, and then maybe kind of say how you think UBI would maybe yeah. change things for you. Obviously, this is difficult because it's kind of this wasn't something that you were particularly thinking about this yeah. morning. So I've yeah. kind of like <laughs> thrown a mental grenade, hand grenade at you. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah I mean, I, I can try, try and make a connection. I think my, my concern is not knowing Enough detail, yeah. UBI, the UBI concept, and I think that's that's the limitation. And I'm worried I'll just, you know, end well, up talking. We,
0: in a... we kind of talked about it, so maybe if we we recontextualize it a little bit. So I mean, as we we chatted before we started recording, and I was talking about a discussion recently where we were potentially talking about breaking that link between earnings and work, and mm. freeing people up to kind of work on things. That they were interested in and not having to necessarily work just to do uh you know, just to get money to get paid to go and consume palm oil. Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly that. I think so. Just to start then, perhaps on the kind of where, where do we go in terms of this future? What what's post-growth or the degrowth movement? What are they saying about where, where we should go? And I should say straight away that I think a lot of the A lot of the ideas proposed, they're not necessarily new ideas, actually. Mm. Um, I think some of the more radical ideas coming from this, and it is really a movement. It's a political movement, actually. And it's not, you know, some people refer to it as a literature. I don't. I see it Mm. as a movement. Some are very radical and are saying, look, we cannot have any kind of anything to do with the current capitalist system. You know, and it sounds quite kind of you know, there's social. Oh, there's social on oh, my left. There's socialism, and okay, somewhere there's communism, and you know that's that's probably a pretty bad idea. But you know, it's it's somewhere quite over here, and it's interesting. I, w- I was having a discussion because I didn't I didn't realise actually quite how far some of the proponents of of degrowth really take it and understand it and i remember having an exchange actually about palm oil as it as it happens with this uh, a phd student who's recently finished who's now working in in barcelona he used to be here in um school of earth and environment at, at leeds and i remember having a conversation with him in a paper so he he submitted a, a chapter to a book that i've co-edited with a, with a colleague and in the comments I gave a bit of a peer review and I said he, he was writing on degrowth and I said something like is there any opportunity for researchers to engage with industries and engage with companies to try and get them to understand their limitations and move towards a, a you know kind of a better, you know, in a very broad sense in a a better way, whether it's integrating su- sustainability into their business models, using standards, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, no, the very, the very fact that you're having a conversation with these organizations is reinforcing the capitalist logic said Mm. you can't we can't you cannot have a conversation with them they are the problem (laughs) yeah you're
0: validating them you're You're valid yeah you are you you are valid and you can solve this for us so if you change then we've changed
2: exactly and so he he was and we ended up not having an argument but we had quite a kind of robust discussion because i then came back and said hold on a second where does that position somebody like me who Mm. does work with with Companies. I do work with palm oil firms, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and I'm working on these these issues. I'm not working on degrowth per se, but I'm mm-hmm. I'm working on these these questions around sustainability. He said, no, that for me doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, you're validating, you're re- you're reinforcing their power in the system, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting. So and now that's just one viewpoint from within this broad movement around post-growth and degrowth but that gives you a little bit of a flavour of some of the that, that kind of hard view quite extreme view of where we need to go ultimately to use Greta Thunberg's you know um Moni- Monica Monica you know we need a systems change it's mm. not you know we don't want climate change we want systems change and actually that feeds into the kind of degrowth movement they want to see democracy, you know, proper democracy, they want mm. to see participatory movement, people mm. actually engaging and having their voice heard and, and being able to you know change change policy and and you know the the sort of climate change commissions or uh, citizen commit citizens communities citizens or- assemblies assemblies that's the word yeah. you've got it yeah those sorts of ideas where individuals actually have a voice as opposed to a vote every 5 years or whatever mm. it is you know through to obviously some some strong environmental uh, policy so mm. investment in 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 public infrastructure in a way that we're not doing you know properly mm. invest so that there isn't this need for private vehicles you know Mm. investing in renewables again not in the way that we're doing in a fundamental way um so yeah it's it's political it's social it's environmental and it runs against everything (laughs) you know go back to the first conversation we had at the beginning of the podcast you know it it runs against the current status quo so it's very kind of unpopular to mm-hmm. some groups who are in power, clearly, but it's growing as a movement within within certainly, I would say, the academic community, but also the kind of non-governmental community are really mm-hmm. coming on board. And, and the likes of Kate Roweth, who we mentioned before, who is the, the sort of champion. She's the she's the brainchild of donut economics, that forms part of, I would say, that some of the ideas, some of the toolkits that are needed to help thinking about. How do we give voice to citizens? How do we give voice in, in, in a way that allows us to make decisions that are in our best interests and uh, in our environment's interests, in our children's interests? You know, so it, it, it's there's some some lots of sort of ideas that are being pulled and kind of coalescing around this idea of a kind of new future or a better future. Which then, to flip it further, you know, how does that then connect in with a with a concept or an idea like universal basic income? Well, I would say quite possibly it links in very it links in very well. There's a there's a there's a good connection there. One of one of the proposals in terms of post-growth or one of the the, the ideas is moving towards a shorter working week, which yeah. in some parts of the world we see it in Europe a little bit, certain parts of Europe. We see proposals on the table and it actually being operationalized. So, you know, a four-day week, a three-day week. You know, the ideas behind that actually, in a way, I think – link a little bit with some of the concepts and some of the sort of ideas behind a universal basic income you're working less in in this Mm. case it doesn't quite doesn't quite equate across but you can see some parallels you work less so you have more time Mm. to do some other things you are less productive to use a capitalist term Mm. in, in that sense but you may be productive in other ways you may be productive to your own mental health your own lifestyle, your family choices, exercise, Uh, you may be pursuing other kind of entrepreneurial interests that like Mm. you, you know, saying before about how this provides you, it could UBI could provide you with an opportunity to do the things that you really want to do, right? Mm. Um, So actually looking at the kind of connections between the two and maybe there is a literature and apologies to yourself and listeners who would say well there's a whole lot written on this (laughs) I don't know nobody knows (laughs) about it (laughs) well I don't know I'm sure there's I'm not I wouldn't say obscure but I'm sure there's people working in this in this area and say actually there is there is a connection and and it feeds into this idea of you know moving challenging and resisting this idea that we must you know like you said we must be working for five six days a week 40 hours mm-hmm. minimum you know we're talking in many cases a lot more than that and mm-hmm. to 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 generate outputs you know key performance mm-hmm. indicators you know think of all the kind of man- managerial terminology and discourse that we use that's really to measure our productive performance which is essentially you know validating this machine that we're working in so yeah I think I think it's a really interesting idea and yeah I I think I need to go away and learn more about it
0: (laughs) yep and uh, what I'm going to do I'm going to let you go now uh, because I'm going to let Alexander respond to that so I'm going to sign up what I'll do I'd say Oh, big spoiler to anyone that I leave this in the recording. So, yeah, what I usually say at the end of the recording is I'll send it back to you. Uh, I'll basically run it through a filter, chop the beginning and end, very beginning and end off. And then you just have a listen. And if you're happy with everything, let me know. Um, But, yeah, I'll let you dash off. Thank you very much for taking part this morning. And, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll come back to you, Alexandra uh on that same issue so bye rory so alexandria oh you're bigger now (laughs) more space on the screen so um yeah so same question or i we we can kind of reframe it or are you happy to kind of talk from there i I would
1: be (laughs) after listening to the so it would be really helpful. <laughs> the question being, how do you how to incorporate the idea of universal? Basic yeah, well, I want, to, I, I want
0: to again get your thoughts on kind of degrowth, post growth, limits to growth, that kind of mm. thing. Uh, and then maybe we can come to UBI at the end if you want to sort of add anything on that.
1: Yeah, yeah, so I. I've looked. I know that Rory and I have talked about it in the sense of looking at the theories and the ideas and the models that are a starting point to understanding how to shift away from this continued, exponent, you know, never ending growth mm. and depletion of sort of Earth resources. I think uh, Kate Roweth in one of her presentations gives a really good sort of analogy of basically the it, the Earth's economy, the, you know, the world's economy is like an airplane that's taken off, to, you know, started industrial revolution. And then really is there's liftoff, you know, post second world war and now mm. it's shooting up and it's it's flying in the skies mm. and the expectation of that plane is that it never comes down it never lands mm. because we just continue using the resources and we continue growing 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 forever and it always mm. is flying and and actually it does need to we can't sustain that sort of flight a,
0: a wizard won't fix it
1: <laughs> no no wizard, no i know everyone gonna... thinks
0: a wizard will come along and fix it not
1: gonna
0: happen. like the magic
1: money tree no yeah. exactly it's is is that we the earth's resources are completely going are being depleted have been Mm. depleted and that there is a what is how do we tackle that how do we stop exhausting the planet Mm. um and and this 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 has been allowed or this has occurred because the the planet and its earth, the earth resources have always been seen as an externality. It's just something that's always there, mm. and that might have worked when the economy and the global economy was a lot smaller, and the the, the earth sort of population was a lot smaller. Mm. But really, it's it's really been in my parents lifetime post war sort of or during the war up until now last 70 years that the population and and our economic growth has 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 gone wild it's it's yeah. gone wild and it enables the living that those in the sort of advanced economies can enjoy mm-hmm. and we know that, that it's unfair we know that this growth based on slavery we know it's based on ex- extraction of 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 resources and enormous amounts of social injustice mm-hmm. so Thinking about how do we how do we address uh, all of these issues as we've talked already today, it's very much we need to acknowledge how we've got here. We need to understand how we've got here into this a bit of a mess and we need to acknowledge that not, every, not everybody is going to be able to understand that and, and get their heads around. But those people in power. That we need to tackle. And I think the academics, like Julia Steinbeger, Kate Raworth, Jason Hickel, you know, and, and others, there's um, excellent r- researchers, the IPCC, we need to focus our attention on those who have decision making power, mm-hmm. And we need to find ways of doing that. And that's where the public and the people and society can rise up and can activate that kind of change. It's happened before. Mm. It's new and different. So my view is that it's all possible, that, that post-growth and making these changes is possible. Mm. It's just how we get there. Mm. And the way I'm trying to cope, to cope with this these major challenges that can be really sort of overwhelming to so many and and myself included it, it, they can feel so big mm. is trying to think about communication I'm naturally am always being a com- communicator that's core cool strength of mine so looking at how we communicate and tell stories and in, and and help society and the public to engage in understanding what the issue is and the the ideas out there for how to tackle it mm. and, and increasing that awareness is 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 the way i'm my little person you know in york is trying to to fix the world is mm. <laughs> that if we can get better at communicating and telling stories and sharing these amazing ideas of the donut economics and the living well within limits and this and this is perhaps this is where I think the universal basic income is, is that is talked about both in both the living well within limits. And the the, the, the idea is, is that we need to uh, redistribute wealth so that you have everyone living within a, a certain standard and quality of health and welding Basic mm. rights, basic healthcare, basic opportunities for education to work and, and to contribute. Mm. Um, and that, that is a, that, that basic universal basic income I, is actually a really core cool tenet with mm. core cool idea within the, 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 uh, the research on post growth, the, the big ideas about what a post growth, um, society looks like and what And the nature of the systems change. Mm. So all of the all of the frameworks talk about evening up and sharing the distribution of wealth. And they have begun to look at how we do that, how we change the economic system, because my, uh, as I said, as an economic geographer, the core question is, where does that where does that value that wealth that income come from? Mm. How is it generated to be able to redistribute it? And to an aspect that there will be need that you see, Ellen MacArthur Foundation is showing that the circular economy shows that you can have continued uh, value creation and, and growth, but growth where that's redistributed. So the long you use items for longer, you don't have sort of technological obsolescence. You have uh, systems, the circular economy activities where you have this redistribution of value. Mm-hmm. And, and so the Ellen McCarthy Foundation has a brilliant sort of videos explaining what circular economy is definitely mm-hmm. worth looking at it. They, ex- they explain the whole process. That's the next stage of Rory and I's research. We're looking at the circular economy in sort of creative sector, sort of virtual production and, and with colleagues from Excel Stories um, at the University of York. We're looking at plus our further work that we're looking to do in advancing ideas about how to improve communication about the challenges we face, global challenges. And so the universal basic income, I think is really important. And listening to the conversation before, I was thinking about value. So mm. as as and perhaps that's being um, a geographer as well, you've got unpaid work and work. So it's just the value. So all the women and, and men out there who are, producing value by looking reproductive value by looking after families and maintaining, if they're not in the workforce, but they're actually supporting society by raising doing children doing the free labour, yeah. All, all the unpaid, yeah, free labour. That and and I think the so the UBI for me is that if everybody lives At a certain level, but then you can put value back into society by saying, right, we'll we'll work together to maintain community spaces, Mm. work together to share resources, Mm. organize, lead. So it's all that you might get a basic income, Mm. but then you will be using your labor uh, to maintain. The, the, the standards of living maintain society maintain the environment it's just that you're not getting paid for it but what you see what are you getting paid in return cleaner mm. air mm. green space healthy mm. children mm. uh resources less that support stress, others
0: better less, outcomes, less stress longer life and, better yeah, quality of life
1: but that's right and 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 the for those societies that are living on very very minimal wages mm.
2: like um, hours. They're probably, uh,
1: yeah <laughs> like house and the, and, the, and minimal wages who are not surviving who are facing mm. starvation and for oh and um, as well as uh other parts of the world where the i mean there's relative poverty and there's absolute yeah. poverty is yeah. where they are literally on the streets and they have mm. nothing
0: mm.
1: There are pro- lots of people in those in societies living in absolute poverty Poverty will say, "Well, we do all that work anyway. We do all the maintaining. We Mm. just we've never got paid for it. It just happens anyway." Mm. And it's there's lots of different. I'm I'm not not passing any kind of judgment because I think there's the I think there's such extremes that people live in. It's just in the in the UK, say 150 years ago, 1870s or whatever, you would have seen people living on the streets Mm. and in absolute. Absolute poverty—it's mm. just hidden. Mm. It's just hidden in the UK at the moment, yeah. and we have a huge spectrum of wealth in all all over parts of the world. So it's it's thinking about how do you, how do we recognise value? I think that it's, it will be very difficult to move away from the capitalistic system mm. because we, it's all ingrained in everything we do, mm. and there's nothing necessarily wrong with the notion of value. It's just whether we only attribute uh, cash value, monetary value mm. to tasks mm. and, and how we can say, well, there's value. It's it's what we categorise as value, you know, community value, ecological value, mm. not m- just monetary value. Mm. So I would fully be in support of the universal basic income to allow people to shift, to allow people to explore and shift and enter into other systems of value creation mm. uh, you know community ecological societal space educational child rearing reproductive value mm. all of these w- would be described as unpaid but actually we need to equate that that so-called unplayed yeah. value as the same value and have that as a more um systemic approach um, because that's actually what that's actually what post-growth is about it's mm. it's it's shifting our notions of value mm. and and reordering um at these uh, the the way in which system the systems operating right now and getting people on board mm. and we need to tell people about this we need people need to know we need to communicate about these ideas and and the only way to do that is to get those producing the the stories and those in power to shift their views I mean I think that. I think there's a lot of buy-in from the storytellers.
0: But a, a lot of that as well is, you know, because we do want it to be bottom-up as well. Mm. And the thing is, if if the the public at mass, at large, are talking about it and talk about it, like, all the time, yeah, they won't have a choice but to talk about it or to be... Because if you're kept out of the conversation, what's the best social pain? You know, shame and exclusion. Like... Mm-hmm if they're kept out of the conversation that'll really upset them yeah (laughs) and I think that's worth doing just for that
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah but Um, we need those politicians to you know to act actually engage and there Mm. are and there are politicians out there who are who have that integrity but we've been there there was only
0: like three turned up to that climate briefing wasn't it of Mm. like oh we're going to tell you people what's actually happening and like you know three turned up or whatever it was probably more yeah. than three but you
1: know <laughs> I, th- I, I, I think that it's it's we if we can get you know major communicators maybe like Channel 4 ITV BBC mm-hmm. major film producers all those decision makers having feeling and you know having that voice and I mm-hmm. and from what I understand there is a lot of motivation mm-hmm. it's just it's almost knowing how and yeah. that's what Rory and I are trying to help with: is how do we do this? Yeah. And and I think and our next research project will be really looking at engaging more researchers. Uh, I mean, I think it was only on Monday, in I think the start of the week, that um, Professor Dame Francis, who's director of the British Antarctic uh, Survey, said, "Communicators, we need to communicate this, and we need to communicate it through every means." I've literally quoted her in my project report because. They know the importance of communication. So uh, the next work that Rory and I will be doing is approaching all these leaders, mm-hmm. saying, "What do you want to? What do you want to say? And how? Ha, what do you want these storytellers to to say, mm. to share? And how? And let's let the framework that we've developed be a beginning process, a route to to enabling that to happen. And we'll be going to, you know, big names mm. in, in communication, TV producing, TV channels, and saying. Mm look show, can we show you this yeah. can we get you thinking along these ways and that and that would be and then and that would be a start mm. to getting it out you know to the masses and and and, they, and and empowering people to make a decision and to to be able to go actually I can do something mm. and and I, it's not out of my control and I don't need to look away because I can do something yeah um, and, and, and that's th- that's the
0: goal and that's real empowerment you know like actually showing people a way forward things that they can do that they can do things you know again that's not just changing their light bulbs and their shopping bags but like no. you know productive you know social regenerative productive activity Absolutely. one other thing that I want to say on the recording which I was thinking of while Rory was speaking and is becoming more and more my motto nothing about me without me like you know it's that the whole of social production you know like we we want to communicate because we want to empower people not just to act but you know democracy is action democracy in action you know to to deliberate to come to consensus to you know try and find a way forward and all of that kind of activity can I just ask you one quick question as a wrap-up? Because I think sure. it's good to get your take on, on this. So we mentioned globalisation a couple of times. So, and we, you know, there's loads of stuff that we should have touched on or could have touched on. I mean, we could probably, this podcast could have been days long, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to ask the, so I, I'll kind of frame it a bit first. So with COVID, we saw just in time, Uh, supply chains pretty useless in a crisis uh outsourcing all your productive activity around the world not great in a crisis not having any surplus of, of stuff not great in a crisis uh obviously global supply chains in a climate changing world not great definitely won't be able to get them just in time if they're all ending up on sailboats so do we need globalize? Like, my answer to this is obviously yes, because, you know, we don't have all the we don't have any rare earths in England. So, you know, even if we were making stuff here, we'd need to get some rare earths to make those things or cobalt or whatever.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, slightly disingenuous question, do we need globalisation? And like, that is a major driver of climate change as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Can you just talk to that a bit?
1: Well, this is, this is a good question. I know question, it's another actually. one of those huge questions. No, that's, uh, it's, it's a good question. It's, it's <laughs> been, um, I spent years thinking about globalization and, and the processes. So probably it would be helpful for you and, and hopefully the, the listeners to think about globalization in terms of a series of processes. It often, very often it's talking about in the singular as, as if it's one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that can be quite confusing and hard to sort of uh, grapple. So, globalization, and, and this is sort of the definition I, after conceptualization, and broadly defined that I can give, is it's a series of, pro- of, of processes. And internet interconnecting relationships and that's the, the broadest definition and, and those relationships ha- happen globally uh, but at an intersect different scales from local sub-national national regional such as the eu um, to international and global so you have if you think about it as a as a web of interconnecting uh relationships and they they it, or it can it can you know go up and down these these relationships uh, through uh, and so that i don't think we would uh, we can't say we we don't need it because it's more this is the nature of how our our world operates if we think about just the economic functions within that the, so you have global political relationships you have community relationships that operate at local and national, international level. You have labour organisations that operate and our relationships, environmental relationships of global. So that, so we could never do without globalisation because then that would be doing without relationships mm-hmm. and only looking at what relationships we have within the UK. Mm-hmm. But when we think about the global economic system and that the production networks and supply chains, And the systems through which we get our goods and services and the connections that is where we can look at them and go these aren't working well these aren't functioning well for the climate for sustainability for the depletion of the resources uh, for us in terms of our dependence because it means we're exposed and that can lead our cost of you know the availability of food um, you know, I think it was sort of lettuces, tomatoes or whatever that wasn't quite available or our food systems, mm-hmm. the, the, the vulnerability. There's nothing wrong with being vulnerable as such because we have to work with other people. But it's what, what those, what the, that exposure to this, what does the degree of interconnection in our economic systems and production and networks with goods and services mean for us in our daily lives? And that can mean that we do, we are much more subject to that to that uh, higher uh, rapid changes in the cost of and
0: the shocks. those
1: fluctuations w- with the the impact of the oil and gas prices mm. um, how those structures are you know and everybody's how that's suffering. impacted
0: the banking industry which... the
1: financial structures and the 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 exp- and the mismanagement and the, it's become too complicated for policymakers to fully comprehend
0: and they have so, no policies left either so they just like it's bail or... <laughs> yeah, out or
1: yeah it's the, the the and the and the i mean and going back to that sort of that ideological uh hands off distant leave it to the market the invisible hand of the market it doesn't work anymore you know Liz has catastrophically bad, mm-hmm. you know, economic policy through Kwasi Kwaten last year, you know, mm-hmm. uh, th- that had c- catastrophic issues because they were seeking to go through the the uh, hands-off, let the trickle-down market effect. It doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not functioning. We've moved on it, moved on from it. We are highly integrated, mm-hmm. but we need to ha- think about if we can Make a lot of the environmental policy that the, 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 what's being advised is that if we adapt and look at more closer reliance on renewables within the UK, we've got wind, we've got wave, we've got mm. solar, mm. we've got so much and, and to a point nuclear, but I have problems with nuclear because of its risks. Mm. We've got such opportunity to shift and reduce our energy um, vulnerability. Mm-hmm. That, that is something that we really need to be thinking and focusing on mm-hmm. and pressuring, you know, the MPs. So what are you actually doing to address? We have to see what sort of the Labour come up with mm-hmm. in terms of lo- uh, we have to reinvest. We can see we can increase our resilience to global shocks. We can look at how we shift our farm food system to be more sustainable, to be less reliant. Mm-hmm. We never we we never should be snipping all the ties and all the connections to the economic system because trade is part of that benefit but we have to think about what does post-growth trade look like Mm. and and how do we the UK is is desperately damaged by our leaving the european union mm. because we basically had all these agreements to reduce the cost of exchange between countries mm. you know some uh, other countries will have a, an advantage in producing more efficiently one good so but we're better at another good so we can swap the you know the conservative government cut we went from full integration to zero integration and the uk is experiencing the damage it's Currently experiencing economically because of that, and it's there's there's so little discussion because no one wants the conservatives don't want to acknowledge that they have damaged our economy mm. like never before. Mm. So it's it's we want globalization because of the relationships and the security and the connections, the family, the the community connections, the labour organisations, all of those relationships. We have to narrow down our thinking when considering globalization to the economic structures that don't work well environmentally, that are ex- de- depleting our resources. And we have to think about how can we adapt and mitigate to our exposure environmentally and economically by by altering what we're doing within the UK. And, and there are opportunities that are altering how we our resilience in terms of energy, altering our resilience in terms of food and shift and shifting how we maintain ourselves. And there's lots of and, and looking towards the circular economy strategies which can operate at different scales. You know, there are there's so much that, that we could carry talking about, but I don't know if that sort of helps unpick and explain and break down some of these these bigger issues that your listeners might be sort of thinking about
0: yeah it's uh I what what I'm thinking here so this is this is a a knotty problem that you know you don't we don't we don't hear a lot about, you know, talking about mm-hmm. narratives of, of climate change and sustainability and so on. I mean, you might hear it more in sustainability circles, but it it's definitely not anything I've heard in kind of the mainstream that often. But it's how do you okay, so we do circular economics. We we have local fab labs, everything is, you know, you you buy a design off the internet, you 3D print it at your local fabricators then it's a question of the materials, you know, certain materials we can supply easy. We can substitute some materials for other materials and stuff. And of course, obviously with 3D printing, you're mainly working with plastic, which we don't want to do, but yeah, you could 3D print cups and plates and so on, um, potentially knives and forks and all those kind of things and clothes. Mm-hmm. And so we have all this, you know, rather than just in time delivery, you have when you want it production, but even if you had that say, this still, like i say with the big you know your commodities your coppers your rare mm-hmm. your cobalts your m- mined materials that you are not just recovering from you know because there will be natural usage over time so even if you recover everything from landfills landfill there is a need to have a certain amount of that material so then it's like how is that material distributed globally is it you know? Because mm-hmm. at the moment it goes to where it's manufactured, you know. Like we need it here because this is where we're doing. You know, that all the OEMs, all the original equipment manufacturers, they get all the resources and then they process it and turn it into things. So if we're doing it more locally based, then the location would need to get shipments of of those goods. And obviously, I would guess there would be some trade, some outward exchange yeah. of of things. But yeah, in terms of balance of payments, in terms of like the logistics of that and the governance and administration globally and so on, like, I don't know how easy that is to get to. No, and so uh, on.
1: I think we have to go back to the sort of the principle idea about trade and, and what's called comparative advantage is that some parts of the world will do that process, will translate that, uh, you know, extract certain resources and process them more efficiently. Than the UK or other mm. parts of the world, mm. but we can do sort of technology or services uh more efficiently than they can. Mm. It all do- you can't change, and this is where geography sort of comes in. Then we built in structures that support the efficient production or so sort of development of a service, mm. and some places will do it more efficiently than others. And that's the basis of trade. That's the basis of trade, of of in terms of that international movement of goods. And I wouldn't, and I don't think it would necessarily work to have all of what we need in one. In the UK, we haven't got the structures to enable that. It would also be very costly. So, in terms of shifting those processes to be less dependent, it's rather what processes. Are involved in producing and using core resources? Mm. That what are the how can those processes be changed to make them less environmentally and socially damaging? Mm. Is that possible? Mm. I'm not sure if it is in all cases. Do we look to stop using those resources and shift up to no longer having cobalt in our phones mm. to change? To re, we and that that's that's that question of it's actually okay to be connected and reliant because it reduces costs Mm. and it makes trade allows efficiencies and opportunities of growth it's how is the wealth distributed Mm. how is what is the environmental damage created by that process can that process be changed so it's i think it's we can't rem- we and maybe we shouldn't remove the processes that are happening to enable certain goods and technologies and resources to occur. But it's the 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 negative externalities, it's the the, the negative cost to the environment and, and society, whether through unfair wages or unsafe working conditions that need to be altered. Mm. And that would be it's it's looking at how the process is done that needs to be uh, revised and examined. And maybe we have to do without to ensure people live better and that the, the environment isn't damaged and that the processes are sustainable. And And I think so uh, I think that would be my approach I, I, it's not going to be possible to shift all the A to Z process of creating something into the UK, mm. not to be able to do it efficiently, and not to be able to do that because it, it someone else, there's its trade allows it to be done efficiently, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and that would be my view is is looking at the how, and the networks of production, and looking at the process that allows us to. That, that would enable that shift to more sustainable practices and more ecologically sensitive practices. And some things are going to have to stop. You know, we can't get a new phone every year. We need to la- use the phone we've got and keep it for until, until we pass it on to someone else, at the, you know, when we're told to use it. You know, so it's longevity and sustaining what we've got rather than perpetually creating new things that we need to sort of shift towards.
0: Cool. That's a really good edit-out point. I will say thank you to you on the recording as well because I (laughs) like Rory. So thank you very much for doing this this morning and uh, thank you for your time. Um, I will stop there unless you want to say anything else before I...
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's been really interesting. Thank you.
0: Thank you again to Rory and Alex for being my guests and explaining the toolkit. Thank you to you for listening. Thanks again to all my guests and thanks to you, Leeds, for being my subject. If you'd like a copy of the toolkit, email me at workinghourspod at western-studios.com and I'll send you a copy. It's good. Please throw in a donation if you can or subscribe if you want to. Remember to like, share, follow and subscribe to Working Hours. Work for peace and plan with kindness. Okay, that's me. Cheers ears, take care out there and be kind to each other, Leeds. Working Hours is produced, recorded, edited and published by Simon Treen for Western Studios Leeds Limited. The music was The Bees from Chopin's Etudes, which is in the public domain and was taken from museopen.org. Follow Western Studios Leeds on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash western underscore studios underscore leads and on LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash western hyphen studios. Western Studios Leeds will help you realise your podcast for only £25 for an hour of podcast work. Need podcast production, recording, editing, or any podcast admin doing? Need it all doing? Do you want or need a podcast host or co-host for your podcast project? Then get in touch with Western Studios Leeds Limited. Email makemypodcast at western-studios.com to get your podcast made. I am available to third sector organisations, small to medium-sized businesses and individuals who want to make podcasts or create other digital audio content. Want to make some fundraising case studies? Want to show off your expertise in your field? Want some help creating your show and format, or just some support learning to podcast and getting going? Whatever your podcast needs, get in touch with Western Studios leads. Go to western-studios.com and use the contact page to drop me a message about either working hours or about your own podcast project.